stand up for yourself and I'll back you up cause problems don't solve themselves I'll tell you what instead of would or could I think you should draw a line in the sand and stand your ground it's for your own good Hello, I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of The Voice of Families and Addiction. My name is Roy Poyan, and I will be your host for today's episode. What we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at the system that's here to provide services for you as a family and when you're dealing with substance use disorders. This is a complicated process, and we're going to go through a lot of information today that maybe overwhelming. It is for most people. So if you feel that way, just be understanding of yourself. You're taking in a lot because what we're going to do is we're going to look at the 32 key issues that you'll be facing very likely in your journey lifelong with substance use disorders. So let's get started. And what we're currently doing is we're assuming that you as a family have a complete understanding of the processes and different services that are available in your community as it sits today. Ha, (laughs) that's more than likely not the case. And it doesn't mean that you're behind the power curve. It's very understandable that you don't have a full understanding of this. Unfortunately, there's no real one process or or, or service that will explain all this to you and will explain why that's the case. But let's first understand what's out there And how does it work? What we've basically done is back in the early 70s, we started to see a growth in addictions. This was after the Vietnam War. And we started to use the systems that were currently available in both mental health, addiction services, and medical. Because those are the three types of services that you're going to be interfacing, as well as community services and faith groups. So when we start to say to us as a family, I'll say you, but I mean us, myself included, is that we're going to ask that you have an understanding ahead of time so that you could properly navigate all of these different institutions and their process requirements, what you expect to get out of each of them. And that's going to be very difficult. So we're going to design or we've already put into place a curriculum to you for you to use to help you better understand the beginning parts of what you need to know. And these are just the beginning. Each part will require a much deeper dive into what that is, what you should be asking for, what you should expect, and the outcomes that you'd like to achieve. So what we're going to do is we're going to say that this is an acute care setting and explain that. An acute care setting, in, in, in our mind, is kind of a brick-and-mortar location. We come to it. Let's think of it that Jack has broken his leg. Okay, we take, them, we take Jack to the emergency room. Same true for an overdose. And then we ask that they do the radiology, do the labs. Um, a specialist is called in, and then uh, Jack receives uh, either a resetting, which might require a, a hospital stay, or a cast is what's required, or a splint or crutches. Um, and, and all of that is provided as a temporary kind of fix or stabilizing of the person so that they can then receive stronger care, more deliberate care, specific to the needs of the condition. That's acute care. And we're going to use the word episodic, meaning it happens as an episode, and then it goes. the services go away. So we have an acute care setting, to help us treat an episodic event. Well, that's the system that we're using for currently for the person who's dealing with substance misuse. And in that same idea, this is a chronic disease and it's continuous and it's not gonna go away. We're gonna learn how to manage it, but it's similar to diabetes or asthma, CHF, hypertension. We need to manage it after the acute care setting event. And here's what we mean by that. If your child, spouse, uh, or, or a relative or friend 
uh, goes to the emergency room and requires a, a care, and uh, they then receive the care that stabilizes them, and then they're discharged or they're taken up to ICU and then eventually do a step down and then eventually become discharged. Either way, at some point, they're discharging from that acute care setting. Once again, this is chronic disease, and it's still with them, and it needs to be managed. And so what ends up happening is the medical side of it, and hopefully they're starting a, 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 what, what they call a medical-assisted treatment program that helps them with their cravings, but hopefully they move on to a detox, another acute care setting, another episodic event. Now they get detoxed. And then they would hopefully move into a kind of a posture of uh, uh, either a full hospitalization, a partial hospitalization program, or an intensive outpatient program, in which case for 16 weeks they would be coming to that acute care setting and learning the skills that they need to learn in order to manage their lifelong chronic disease, which is substance use disorders. So here we, we have the kind of the formation of what was already there, we as a society said, let's use these institutions and kind of like hap happenstance, kind of maybe they do, maybe they don't, get them to work together collaboratively. So there's a continuity in the treatment plan, at least in the very beginning. And that's working pretty efficiently. There's some very well-thought-out programs, extremely well-thought-out programs. And there are some really high-caliber people that have put some uh, excellent concepts, thoughts into procedures and processes and algorithms for these groups to use in addiction services, in dual diagnosis, which is when a, a mental health is presented, and then, of course, in the addiction side. So we have three types of programs at play in these brick-and-mortar acute care settings. But once again, this is a chronic disease, and all of it is really taking place in the alternate site setting, alternate meaning outside of the brick-and-mortar. So now what we're doing is we're suggesting that with the absence of services, meaning after the aftercare program is done, what's available? Because we need for this person to achieve successful abstinence and, or sobriety up to and through the five-year marker. It's been empirically proven that should they be able to do that, they drop to less than 15% likelihood of relapse. But then the question is, so who's here to help in this timeline between the aftercare drop-off and that five-year marker? Well, there are some services. It takes a little bit more on the person's part to you know, set this up. And let's, let's remember, this person is not whole yet. They won't be whole in terms of their strength and mental capacities and you know, goal setting and battling off triggers and the cravings, uh, probably for the first three years. So it, it tends to strengthen more after the third year. And, and so the question is, how can we as family members um, participate in this? Well, how can the family succeed in a system that's not designed to work around the family's needs? We're talking about the family, not the person here. Because what I just mentioned in all of these cases, the family is pretty much not included in terms of what you're dealing with, in terms of your lives, because you create an environment, a family dynamic inside your family system that this person is hopefully participating in or maybe pinging off of or gets a little bit of feedback. Understandably, there, there's going to have to be a reunification process because there was trauma during their active addiction and that was left unresolved. So the family has this residue of anger, understandably, anger and disappointments and fear, because they, they just don't know what's going on. So what I just said was, they just don't know what's going on. The family members. 
And then this is true. This is true for all of us. It's not like we took this at high school or, or there was some like employer training that captured a, a, an understanding for us and, and gave it to us. We're going to have to go out and seek this uh, kind of like curriculum. Well, what we've done as a community and, and a lot of the agencies have been funded, heavily funded, to provide what's known as awareness. And I'm not critical of awareness. It's a great starting point. Awareness is helpful. It's helpful. But knowledge is empowering. So we can, we can raise the awareness of family members as to what are the circumstances they'll be dealing with in addiction. Although we don't really. We, we kind of just make them aware of you know, the person and what they're dealing with. That's a lot of where our curriculum is and what the drug is. Um, but we don't really get into knowledge building with families as to the key issues that they're facing. That would require a curriculum. So if awareness is helpful and knowledge is empowering, then specific curriculum knowledge is explosive. And for that reason, there needs to be curriculum based around the family's needs, not the person who's dealing with addiction or our awareness of that person's addiction. We need curriculum that helps us to understand ourselves and what roles we can play to build our part of this equation, which is this really nurturing and helpful and supportive environment for them to kind of fold into when we're ready and for us to participate with them from our perspective as family members. How can I help Jack sustain his efforts, because he's trying really hard, and how could I not get in the way and do things by accident, maybe in a loving act and not fully understanding the implications of what I'm doing? We talked about that in the Enabling podcast, Enabling versus Consequences. So let's go through some of these um, ideas. They're, 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 they're basically, uh, you know, from our perspective, and I'm, I'm positive that there's more. It's just hard to get my hands around all of this in terms of what's going on across the nation. But, but two that come to mind is uh, Hazleton. Betty Ford Hazleton has an incredibly powerful program for families um, and, and educating the families as to their needs, not just the drug addiction and the awareness of the drug and the awareness of what the drug's doing to our loved one, but our needs as a family. So they really have, have thought this through in a very high uh, caliber way from a curriculum standpoint. So I encourage you, go to Hazleton's uh, website, and, and they actually have a, an education-like series that will um, almost provide you with a certification, although I don't think they'd call it that, but certainly a certificate that, you know, you really have taken the time to learn this and, 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 and understand it, and now hopefully use it. So with that in mind, there is curriculum right there, and it's sitting right there, and you can tap into it. Uh, SAMHSA, uh, the Substance Abuse Mental Health uh, Service Group, uh, which is a government-sponsored uh, program, has incredible wealth of information, and, and you can tap into that. Um, there's a program called SMART, S-M-A-R-T, which is primarily for the person that's going through addiction, but they have an element of a family program that's curriculum-based for their programming, too. And, and there are others, and, and please excuse me for not knowing them and being able to say this names here as a reference uh, for you, but, but it's your role to go out and search what other ones are. And that's the good news, because not every curriculum is going to be right for you. And um, families impacted by opioids are non-for-profit. We've designed 32 key issues. And what these issues do for you is they allow you to isolate, slow down, and say, let's specifically learn just this. Wipe the slate clean, and let's just learn this topic. Uh, for example, the family is a system. And what I'd like to do is to kind of just show you this banner that helps you to see the 32 different types of issues. And this is available on our website, Families Impacted by Opioids, all 32. And starting at the top, we've got the family is a system. Well, what would we learn there? Well, there you're going to learn that functionality of each member of the family is a critical part of your learning. You, you would benefit by understanding 
that each member of your family has a certain level of functionality and a certain potential to contribute that to the family dynamic as it relates to the issues that the family is facing. Being aware of that, talking about it, is very healthy for the family as a family unit. And then the, the next area is in the fact that we've studied this and we understand it. There are certain roles in a dysfunctioning family. And dysfunctioning, that's not a criticism. It, it, we're all dysfunctioning when we have to deal with addiction in our family. It's not normal that it would be there, therefore it's a dysfunction. So what we're going to do is we're gonna say, let's take a look at the different roles, and we know what those are, and now you can too. By going to this curriculum online, you'll find all 32 on our third page of the website titled 32 Learning Seminars. You scroll down, and the first video that you'll see is an explanation of that issue. Then down below it, uh, we're going to have a, uh, a click button, and that will take you to Fentanyl and Families in Harm's Way. That's our production of the curriculum that we are providing for that specific issue. And in each of those, you're going to learn how to determine a solution for that issue, how to develop a decision and design a plan of action. And here's how we do that. What we're going to do is we're going to, in this kind of curriculum review, we're going to first provide a study guide, and we do that in Fentanyl and Families in Harm's Way, that made for television production. And we use this book to do that with. And this is a study guide. And inside the study guide, each issue has three learning objectives. And inside that issue and the three learning objectives, you will learn specifically what you need to know about that issue. Knowing that is great, but it's not really empowerment until you've taken the time to apply it to your family dynamic. And here's how we do that. We use the second learning module, which is this book, and all 32 issues are here, and you will actually write down your family experience inside the workbook as it relates to that issue. So now you not only have the three learning objectives, okay, from the study guide, but you also have how it's impacting your family. Now this information becomes alive. It becomes real to you. And then what we do is we move into, you know what the issue is, you know how it's impacting your family, so what? What are you going to do about it? I mean, that's nice to know, but it doesn't really help us to move forward. So we're providing you with the third learning module for that issue. All 32 issues are in here. And in this exercise, that's where you're going to use the 3D coping skills. Determine a solution, develop a decision, and design a plan of action. So now in this made-for-television episode for this issue, you've come up with a plan of action based off of a decision from a solution that you've determined, of which it's of the way that this situation, this issue, is impacting your family from the three learning objectives. Wow. <laughs> That's kind of a lot. It, well, it is, but you're going to go through this anyhow. So why not do it from a curriculum standpoint and why not do it ahead of time? And then in the fourth learning module, all 32 issues, you're going to write down who in the community is available to help you to address that specific issue. So what we've basically done is we've taken your life and by category identified 32 key issues that we're pretty likely you're going to go through. I'm going to continue with this, and this is kind of where it gets a little overwhelming. The next area that we want you to take a look at is the possibility of trauma in the family. Okay, childhood trauma exists in a lot of families, and trauma is defined in a lot of different ways, especially when we start to look at complex trauma. But it could be that somebody saw something that's traumatic, and now that trauma is theirs. So it's not always something that happened to them. They may have been in the environment of trauma, and it's impacted them. At that time, they may not have taken a kind of a, uh, uh, the theories of, of family, family therapy and learn how to cognitively process that. So that childhood trauma would benefit from family therapy for that individual. So who are we talking about? The person that's addicted? Well, yeah, more than likely that's true, but how about his sister? How about the brother? How about the mother? Aren't these events that are taking place? It's pretty traumatic. 
when they swear at you, slam the door because you wouldn't give them money, and you happen to find out that they stole mom's opal ring off of her dresser. And that's why they're slamming the door and walking out because they're going to go hock it and then turn that into cash in order to buy drugs. So our thought is, well, that's pretty traumatic. I mean, it's a violation of all that the family stands for in love and caring. It's hard to be empathetic. So we don't deal with it at the moment. It's enough for us to survive the, 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 the event that took place. So we park it somewhere. But it comes back, okay? It, it doesn't go away. It's trauma. So it finds another way to come out later. Well, the family member, the brother, sister, mother, father, they, they would benefit, if you're dealing with this, by getting together with a therapist and just in a few sessions kind of review that specific trauma. So you know how to, you know, have a dialogue with it, give it a label, identify, and, and have a place. You can't make it go away, but it doesn't have to take a prominent role in your life. With therapy, you'll see that that's true. So then what we're saying is, well, that means we need a family therapist. How do we go and find a family therapist? Well, that's actually a category, and it's an issue for the family. Um, and in the family uh, study guide, the Family Solution Finder Learning Series study guide, um, we actually identify that as an, a, a seminar, a session. And you'll go through the four modules on just the issue of finding the right type of family therapist. But, you know, that's pretty cool. I mean, let's face it. Um, how many times has somebody explained to you exactly how to shop for tires or consume or use your consumerism in other ways? Um, if you had a cardiologist or you have Alzheimer's in your family, th there, there is an association for both of those in cancer, and they help you to learn how to navigate that. Well, that's what we're doing with this curriculum. We're, learning, we're going to learn how to navigate that. Well, that's not going to happen um, just by itself. You're, you're going to actually have to, as a family, sit there and say, hey, listen, we're dealing with addiction in our family. We need to gather together ourselves and assimilate our voice in this. And, and, and we're going to do that by not just being aware of it. I mean, that's helpful, but we want knowledge. That's what's empowering. No, you know what? We want specific knowledge. Enough's enough here. We know exactly what you're going to go through. And we want specific curriculum that teaches us by a specific issue that you as an industry know we're going through. We know that you're going through this. We've already done extensive study for years, empirically proven protocols on what are the three stages of relapse? What are the, what are the three stages of recovery? What are the five stages of change? These are all known. How do I motivate somebody to move from one to the other? Is there like a motivational interview that I could give them? Well, actually there is, and it's proven. We knew it so much that we, we've empirically proven that it works. But we don't have a process of getting it to you, the family. This is where we need your voice. We need for you to sit there and say it. I'm not saying stand in the middle of the town square by the fountain and start screaming. I'm saying your voice internally with the family I'm saying how you as an individual speak to yourself. You need to first sit there and say, enough is enough. I am going to gather some curriculum and I'm going to put into place a way for me to learn because it's there and it's available. You already know on families impacted by opioids, there are 32 key issues and that each issue gives you a video that explains that issue and then a TV episode production on taking you, we literally take you through each of the modules that we've just presented to you here right now. So all of this material is available to you in video. You can buy these books by title on Amazon. You can download them free as a PDF. Actually, it's on that page, the uh, 32 Learning Seminars, in the very top of the uh, scroll down you're gonna see an opportunity to click on each of these learning modules, download them uh, to your computer, and you'll have a PDF. <laughs> now, I, I, I would caution you. Um, the, the study guide is 400 pages, so printing it 
it may be a lot simpler to you know, pay the money and just order it if it's a hard copy that you want to have in front of you. Personally, I like to have a hard copy when I'm studying something. Um, some people like to have it uh, in a video format on their computer. Uh, they can also have it on their phone so they can reference it. But what ends up happening, think about this, is that this whole series of learning is now available to you as, think of it as a library room inside your home, inside the privacy of your home. Because you can view all of these things on your, on your uh, cell phone. You can view these fentanyl and families in harm's way in your computer um, or on your TV. So now it's yours. And we're going to continue now. The other area is for you to understand that there are primary structured providers in your community. They're all set up. They're there. They're waiting for you. They won't come out and find you. That's not their role, nor could it be possible to do this. You have to find them. So just know that, the, that there are, you know, there, there's medical, there's mental health, there's addiction programs and, and groups and companies and non-for-profits and government agencies. And um, what you'll do is in your fourth learning module, the, the resource connections book, workbook, you'll write down for each issue who in your community provide services related to that issue. Then we're going to start to talk about now that we have a family, they're aware of the system, they've kind of looked at themselves from, you know, has there been any trauma that we need to immediately address? And if so, uh, we've gone out and found a family therapy. It's recommended that you look for a group that practices Bowen family therapy, uh, either structural or systematic or multi-level. Uh, we teach you in that those are part of the learning objectives for that specific issue, which is issue number four, uh, family therapy. And then what we're going to do is we're going to say, now go out into the community and find them. And then the question is, okay, so what are we going to say to them? Well, you're going to start with the person who has the problem, and you're not going to need to get an assessment. And in an assessment, you're going to actually need or a diagnosis. And from the diagnosis, there's going to be a plan, of, a plan of treatment. But first, they need your diagnosis in, mild, moderate, severe. So let's say you're going to get a diagnosis. Roy, for what? Well, for three areas. You're going to get a diagnosis for their addiction and what stage their addiction is in. And then you're going to get a stage, uh, you're going to get a diagnosis for their mental health and what stage that's in. And then because they've been using for a while, there's probably something medical that's going wrong and you're going to get a diagnosis on their medical. And whatever condition that might present, you're going to, with that diagnosis from a medical standpoint, you're going to get a staging. So now you have a diagnosis in three different categories, addiction, mental health, and medical. And now what you need to do is look at the idea that each of these requires a plan of treatment. These specialists know that. They know exactly. They've got clinical algorithms uh, by manuals that attach their diagnosis and staging to a specific algorithm of care. And once this person's on that, they've actually, they've actually done the examination and studies that show should this person remain on that, the way it's designed, this is the expected outcome. That's the great news in all of this. Like I said, we know exactly what you're going to go through. We probably know more about the person that's dealing with addiction in those three categories than we know necessarily about some of the family issues. Those are in study, and there's, always, there's already been a wealth of, of um, papers and studies and protocols developed around that. So it's more like putting those pieces together for the individual family member for the family system as a whole. And that's the job of a good therapist. So with that in mind, we're now going to take a look at how exactly does the family take the diagnosis and understand that this is a brain disease. Well, the only way they're going to do that, or the only way we're going to do that, or the only way that I'm going to do that, is if I study it. And we do that in that seminar, but that's just the beginning of your learning. 
We provide a couple of really good videos that are professionally done out there in the internet that um, do explain this to you. Once again, it's just the beginning. But substance use disorders is a proven brain disease, and you as a family member need to know why. Now, come on. We're not kidding. You really, you've got to learn this. You don't have to learn it. You're going to benefit from learning it. You're not going to benefit from learning it unless you connect with curriculum, specific curriculum that you can learn from. So the next area then is, does the disease progress? And the answer is yes, it does progress. It can progress in a positive or a negative way. Really does it plateau, but you know you, you do see um, uh, factors involved in why either of those happen. There are factors that apply to why this person is getting better as it progresses in a positive way. There are factors based on why they're not getting better and they're getting worse. Remember that plan of treatment. That's, that's the linear, you know, it goes like this, okay? If there's a factor that creates a variance that it spikes up and then an intervention is done to bring them back down to the plan of treatment, okay? So when we have those kind of factors that interfere or complement we can actually almost measure how that's going to play out in the future. So with that in mind, it, the disease does progress in stages, mild, moderate, and severe. And then we start to look at the, the other area of does, does relapse have to happen? Well, no, not necessarily, but it does happen, and it happens because it's part of the disease. Guess what? Diabetes has relapses. Oh, okay. We don't, we don't have a very big deal about that because the relapses aren't as severe as what's noted in, in when a person with addiction um, actually has a relapse. But, or I should say while they're in recovery, they actually have a relapse. That's a more correct way of looking at it. See, all of this discussion is about recovery. We're not trying to teach you about addiction. We're trying to teach you about recovery. So everything that you talk about should be on the topic of, but what's going on to help them with their recovery? What's going on with the different family members as they experience this journey of that person's recovery? And how are they doing? Because they need to be whole. They create the environment that's going to hopefully support this person in sustaining their lifelong successful recovery. So now we know that relapse is a part of it. We shouldn't be surprised when it happens. And we're going to show you in other episodes how to prepare for it. Now what we're going to do then is take a look at the types of things that get involved in creating a problem. Enabling can create a problem. We discussed that. Boundary setting, our ability to set boundaries, is something you can learn. It's one of the issues. And then we're going to look at family intervention. It's not so much of an intervention as we might think, okay, we're in a hotel room and we've hired this person and we're going to come in and we're going to read you know, what we had written for uh, this person to hear about how we feel, what it's done to us. These are all very helpful, but it's only helpful. It's episodic in the fact that it drives them to detox and then hopefully into a treatment program. The family intervention concept is not designed for lifelong sustained recovery, typically. But that's where the family kind of folds in with their understanding of this journey and what their role can be. So now that we know the five stages of change on each issue that they're dealing with or that we're dealing with, you know, we could be more understanding that in Petrasca de Clemente's uh, presentation of empirically proven stages, um, these five stages of pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and then maintenance are all a part of our new awareness because in the study guide, we learned it. And in the work module number two, we applied it to our life and real life examples. And then in number three, we determined a solution, developed a decision around this particular stage of change. 
And we've written out who can help us, okay, in terms of moving them through. So now we're also going to start to look at interventions. Well, when we're talking about interventions, we're talking about somebody who isn't normally there is now there, and they're really intervening in our lives. As a family, yes, because they're intervening in this person's life. We're circling around this person's life. What's happening to them typically is what's happening to us, especially as it relates to emotions. So the police intervention is one of them. You understanding what the booking process is, how the police are responsible to gather their evidence around a criminal action that's taking place and how a warrant is addressing that. And then what are the stages leading up to a trial review, what they call a pretrial review. There's actually 12 steps to that. Uh, and in the learning book, in the study guide, we go through that. We also suggest that you fill out a missing persons report. And the reason for that is it helps you to understand more about the person that you may have before said, well, that's his life and I don't need to know where he banks. In this case, you do need to. It's a benefit. And when the police show up and ask, where, where is John? You can give him, or Allison, this particular sheet and say, uh, this, is, this is the characteristics if they were missing that we believe you'd want to know. And that form is included in this material so you can do that ahead of time. So now you're really prepared because you know, you know, what's his Facebook, who are his friends, what kind of car does he drive, what's the license plate number, these aren't things that you would normally give the police when they knock on the door and say, you know, we're looking for Bob. And, and, and you're sitting there thinking, well, we don't know where he is. Well, that's not really helping the police out. But if you say, listen, we've pre-designed a missing persons report. It's got all the facts about Bob on it. Let me give it to you. And if you find any of these helpful and you're helping Bob uh, in terms of, you know, catching up with him, then that's great because that means we're probably avoiding something else that's going to happen in his life that's going to make it even more of either a legal problem or a detriment to his health and well-being. So then we're going to start to look at an emergency room visit. And in that issue, we're going to learn that, get three assessments. Use it as an opportunity for screening, for a brief intervention, and then a referral to treatment. That referral to treatment is really important. You've become kind of a mini command center when you're in the waiting room of the emergency room. That's how you can use your time productively. You'll learn how to do that in this specific seminar. Can you kind of see how this specific curriculum is building your knowledge on a lot of issues that's strengthening you? And I really hope that you take the time ahead of time to go through these 32 and make them a part of your family dynamic it will greatly benefit you. And then what we're looking at is the legal system. Um, hopefully, you will have proven out because you have a diagnosis um, and it shows what stage. You can give that to the prosecutor and say, listen, would you please consider drug court for you know, Donna? Because um, we think that this is all in relation to her addiction. Here's the proof of that. So the family proactively provides that information from records that they've been keeping. And, and now it makes it a little bit easier for your person to get into drug court, which has a very systematic way of providing a second chance. So they could be avoiding um, a lifelong penalty of a felony record by successfully completing drug court. But a lot of other things happen that are very positive by completing successfully completing drug court. And knowing what that system is, and you will learn that in this curriculum, you will be able to then you know, say, this is what we can expect and here's how we participate in it. Instead of saying, they're saying, oh, geez, he's going to court again. You know, well, no, this is really positive. And because it's positive, the family can get into it in a positive way too because they have areas that we, in the study guide, point out they can participate in. So that's the intervention of the legal system. And there's another intervention. That's the treatment center, pretty obvious. But many treatment centers now are including families to come in and they're going to help you understand, you know, things about medical assisted treatment, things about um, other programs when they get out that you can take advantage of and should, um, how you can help support this person, especially their first like 12 months after their treatment is completed, uh, which is a very vulnerable time for them. 
So then we're going to get into, you need to understand what's available in your community. And social services understands this very clearly. It's called community mapping. And we actually did a podcast on it, you'll recall, where you stick a pin in a map and you draw a five-mile circle. And for each issue of these 32, you find a provider that provides it and you put it in your uh, connecting resources, module number four workbook. So you have that information ahead of time. When it comes that you need to use it, you understand what, what their protocol for admissions will be, what types of documents they'll need, what some of the out-of-pocket expenses will occur. So when we're then moving from that, we move to the possibility of a relapse. Well, there are three stages in relapse, and we're going through that in our, in our podcast also. And what we're going to be studying in the study guide, when we pick that up and, and look at it, are the three stages of self-care, mental, and then physical. They actually set off flags, typically. Sometimes it happens so fast there aren't any flags to notice. But typically we do see indicators that would suggest they're, they're on their way towards a relapse. And you'll learn what those are in that. Then what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the things that a family can do to assist itself, uh, in, in yourself as individual family members, as a family, as a family combined system in terms of your family dynamic and the kind of environment and culture you're setting up Now that you are a family with addiction, things are not going to be the same. It's a new norm for you. Embracing that, learning about it by taking these seminars and other types of information, of which ours is just the very beginning part. You'll you'll expound on your learning on certain topics and dig deeper. Hopefully, this is the beginning of you learning how to learn by taking the uh, learning objectives and seeing how we've structured them is the same way that you can structure your own learning on other topics in the future, especially the 3D coping skills. So now what we're doing is we're taking a look at the possibility of bereavement. And you're thinking, oh, Roy, let's not go there. Well, you're right. I mean, an overwhelming majority of people do not die from this drug. We hear about them. And when you sit there and you think, well, there's been, you know, like hundreds of thousands of people that have died over the past couple of years from this, how can you say that? That is a very small number to the amount of people that are in addiction. Keep in mind, only about 10% of the population that's in addiction receive treatment. So statistically, because they don't hit our systems, we're not even aware that they're out there. But we do know as a prevalence and occurrence in addiction that there's a huge pool of people that are not being treated that it really narrows to a very small number of those that get treatment. And then there's an even smaller number, really, really smaller number of those people who die. But it may not be a death that is in your realm, but it may be somebody else's. So knowing about bereavement, complex bereavement, uh, when does a doctor need it as opposed to when it's just time required, uh, the Kevlar curve, of uh, grieving is helpful for you to know, and you'll learn all that in this seminar. So as we're starting to look at other characteristics of this, God plays a role. Let's face it, I'm not going to argue about it. It's, it's the way that I think and believe this is a battle of good and evil. And we already know how it ends, but for right now, we're living in the evil part of this. And by not accepting that, you're missing a critical factor of how you can survive this journey and create a healthy new norm for you and your families. Now, I'm not talking about the person who's dealing with the substance misuse and now is in recovery. I'm talking about you as family members. Getting back in with your spiritual and faith practices is a very valuable thing to do. So if you weren't going to church, Now's a good time to go back to church. If you weren't praying, now's a really good time to pray and to have a relationship with God and to turn these problems over to God because that's what he asks us to do. Then what we're going to start to look at are the elements of a plan of action. You know, it's always good to sit there and say, I'm going to. But when you plan out ahead of time, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this the likelihood of it taking place is even greater. 
It's even more greater when you prioritize that list. And then it's even more greater, expansively greater, when you're able to include other elements into your plan. Because if you have a plan, you can go down and with a social worker, you can share, here's my plan, and this is what we, this is what we intend to do on this specific issue. It's our plan. What would you do differently, or how would you make this even stronger? And you're soliciting them to take your plan. They will love you for that. It makes their work a lot easier, because then they know what do you understand from what you don't understand about what it is that you're seeking to do. A plan allows for more effective communication with yourself, as well as to those that can help you to even improve how you're responding. So a family, a family plan of action is important, and no man's an island. It's going to benefit you if you can take that family plan and assign roles and responsibilities to the different members in your family. It creates a communio, a collaboration, a family dynamic around the idea that we're learning, we're growing, we're understanding certain things, we're sharing. This is how empathy is applied to yourself, to the other family members, and to the one that's experiencing recovery. So with that in mind, then we start to look at some of the other things that are going to, that will possibly take place, and that is it's important for you to get networked in advance. Don't wait for the time that it comes to take place. So we have a seminar, and you building your network of a whole bunch of providers in your area. So when something happens, you know exactly who to go to. That advanced preparation of building your personal network around your family interests, around what you can and can't do and where you would need help in order for you to be able to do it, it is very valuable. It's so valuable that we've applied it to one of our issues for you to learn. Then we're starting to look at other things. Suicide prevention. Well, the person that's taking uh, misusing substances, you would think they're very vulnerable to suicide. That's true. That's true. So is his sister. So is his mother, and father, and aunt, an uncle. People that are in this person's life are available for suicide ideation, suicide thoughts. And when we learn about how to address suicide and be comfortable with the topic, the question is, how are you doing? And if you're dealing with this right now, I'm going to ask you right now, how are you doing? Have you had thoughts of the suicide? Have you created a plan on how you might do that? Have you talked to others about your thoughts regarding suicide? Where are you in this? I'm, I'm, I, no, I'm sorry. I'm asking you that right now. If you're viewing this, you may, you may very likely be a family member that's dealing with this. So I am asking you now to answer this question, okay? And if you're answering the yes in any way or fashion, I'm going to ask that you pick up the line and call the suicide hotline and ask them what steps you should take. Don't let this sit. When you let suicide ideations and suicidal thoughts, they fester and they start to develop and the echoing that you hear starts to convince yourself that this is the right path and it takes a life of its own on. So go ahead and cancel that by getting help. And, and people think by getting help, that means they're going to tell me, they're going to take over my life, they're going to embarrass me. You know what? More than likely not. We understand how to address suicide now. And if you give us the chance, we can assist you in what you need to do and be there in a very compassionate way to help you move through it. You'll get through it, but you'll get through it in a more assured way if you include others. So end of topic, but it's never an end of topic when it becomes suicide prevention. You should always be in a posture of a willingness to ask how are you doing? I saw a young lady sitting on a curb the other day, and I came out into the parking lot, and I got into my car, and I started to back out, and she was still sitting there, and I could see she was talking to herself. I pulled back into my lot, and I opened the door, and I kind of stepped halfway out the door, and I called over my hood, are you okay? And she turned, and she said, what? And I said, are you okay? And she knew what I was saying, and she said, no, it's okay, I'm fine. The difference was 
I pulled back into the lot, meaning my slot, my parking spot, and I got out of the car and I asked the question. I'm asking you to do that much. If nothing else, please do that much. When you see anyone at any time, suicide prevention is a, an always matter, not a what is it convenient for me or when am I comfortable with it. You're never going to be comfortable with suicide prevention discussions. It's a very uncomfortable thing to do, but it's the most caring, loving, kind, spiritually impacting thing that you could do for yourself and give it as a gift to somebody else that may be, and you'll never know for sure, but that may be considering killing themselves. So with that in mind, we're going to move on to financial management. The two are not related. Sometimes they are. But the fact is, when you're, when you're looking at the addiction journey, you have to be careful with your money. Money is a finite entity, and um, it's expensive. Uh, some of these visits can amount to $75,000 in a year being spent on certain kind of treatment modalities, locations, transportation, housing. Um, you could burn through your 401k very quickly, early in the process, and then not have any money to help them later when they're just on the cusp of really achieving successful recovery, but you can't help financially at that point. So it's kind of like the Davy Boone, keep your powder dry as you're going through the forest. You don't know when you're going to have to load your flintlock. So with that in mind, keep your money managed and find out how much do things cost. Be careful not to go out of network. A lab might be out of network. Ask ahead of time. Always ask the hard questions up front. Okay? You can, just like with suicide, ask the question up front. When you're in the uh, ER, you know, ask what the process is. At the same time, ask what your out-of-pocket expense is going to be. You're not being, you're not being a money you know, um, manager in terms of in a negative way. You're being a responsible participant and allocating the monies that you do have in a responsible and reasonable way. And that's the way you need to approach money because we tend to think, oh, I'd pay anything to get that better. Yeah, we know that. I, I don't mean to be glib about it, but we understand that all of us feel that way. Um, but the reality is we don't have an endless amount of money. And so in a loving way, um, it's not like we're limiting them or allocating according to our you know, bias. You know, we're going to find out from everybody that we can what's the right decisions. And then we're going to seek people's assistance in understanding this is how much money we have. You know, we need for it to last you know, years and years upon years in order to be helpful throughout this lifelong journey. Um, how can we use it for this incident so that you know, we're, we're properly managing the finances? Don't shy away from talking about your cash as it relates to helping this person or another member of your family that might require care. So with that in mind, there's other things that are part, part of this, and that is um, family services. In some cases, if your child has a child, or if your spouse or cousin has a child and they're dealing with addiction, you know that one of two things are going to happen. The, the, the state is going to come in and say, we need for you to develop a plan of action around how you're going to deal with this. And if not, then how are you going to take out what it is that you, know, you could do in terms of them being cared for. If they're not being cared for in a way that is going to be helpful to you, then you're, you're, the state is going to decide that for you. That's not where you want to be. Ahead of schedule, you know that they have these children. You know that they're dealing with addiction. It's either you that's going to take them, in which case it's called kinship, or they're going to be placed in a foster family temporarily. The goal is always to get them back to the parents. But the parents have to be able to care for the children in a way that's responsible. And they have a criteria. So you could actually learn about the foster care process and the kinship process ahead of time. If you've got a 
person and they are dealing with addiction, they have children, you're being irresponsible, and I don't mean to get negative on you, but you're being irresponsible if you don't do that. Because you know that eventually they're gonna to have to go to a rehab center or they're gonna go incarceration or something's gonna happen because it's gonna get worse before it gets better. And you don't necessarily wanna be making those decisions at the exact time that's happening. So with that in mind, Narcan, in terms of being prepared. Narcan is very critical to how you're going to respond to a, um, a person who is using opioids. And it may be that you need, with today's fentanyl, three or four Narcans. But even if you just have one, you've already called the emergency squad, they're on their way, so it might just be a bridge to sustain them just enough so that when they get in there, they can apply the right treatments and, and, and protocols uh, to respond to the intensity of the situation when they arrive. Um, have Narcan on you. Giving them Narcan makes very little sense. If they're overdosing and they're alone, they're not going to break out of Narcan and give it to themselves. That's never going to happen. Uh, they're already in overdose at that point. So with that in mind, um, having it in, in proximity, Having that on them isn't a bad thing. <clears throat> in many cases, somebody else is with them. They could look to see if they have Narcan on them and pull it out and, and administrate it. But you having Narcan in the house, in your glove compartment, caution about glove compartment, it gets hot. So, you know, you, you don't want baking Narcan like it's in an oven because that's about what it would look like. Um, and it, they do have an expiration date, so you want to be careful for those two factors. But get training when you get the Narcan. Understand how to apply it, when to apply it. By the way, if you apply it and they didn't need it, it's not going to damage anything. Uh, it'll just wash out through their system. There are programs in many states called peer-to-peer -peer services. This is a great concept. It's typically a licensed person that's gone through extensive training and has lived experience of themselves uh, dealing with addiction. There are new programs called family peer-to-peer in which case these are family members that have done the same kind of training, but only on the perspective of being a family member, dealing with somebody, a loved one, who is uh, going through a journey of addiction and then recovery, uh, and they help those people. They team with you. Uh, in, in the state of Ohio, it's actually a billable, so we have organizations that um, are Medicaid reimbursed, and therefore they have a certain process of how many times they can visit with this person in a week, but those coaches are so valuable to include. Once again, in your community mapping, we would hope that you would be including this. And in your advanced networking building, I would hope that you would include that also. So peer-to-peer -peer services are extremely useful and they should be incorporated every time, regardless of what stage they're in, regardless of their drug of choice. Then we're getting down to another uh, asset that could be used called medical-assisted treatment. And in medical-assisted treatment, this is a Suboxone, meth Methadone, uh, Vivitrol. These are, these are products that help to reduce cravings. And if the mind can settle enough, then what they've learned in the treatment center and hopefully in their ongoing mental health sessions afterwards, uh, they're learning cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectic behavioral therapy, the way that they talk with themselves, how they talk with others. And this helps them to strengthen their ability to think better. Uh, they're less in the pleasure side of the brain. They're now active more in their thought life, uh, in their prefrontal cortex, which is where we find logic, reasoning, and judgment. Those are taking a greater role in their thought life. This is, this is where they want them. Hard to do if you're craving for the drug. So the, the medical-assisted treatment subsides a lot of that. Um, it could be that they're on medical assisted treatment for the remainder of their life. Don't, as a family member, start to force them into thinking, oh, well, you should be over that by now. Don't do that. That's not a conversation family members should have. If they're, if they're advised by clinicians that they should be on it, be supportive of that and help them to have compliance with it. You know, whatever way that they, you know, if they need to get down to the drugstore, um, you, you can ask them how they're managing it. You can visually see, um, is the product available? Is it in the medicine cabinet? You know, is it by their nightstand? You know, are they, are they actively taking it? And, and that will determine, you know, whether relapses are going to 
pop up in the future. Often we find that that's one of the scenarios is they stop taking their medical assisted treatment because they don't like the idea of taking a drug to reduce the cravings. They don't want to feel that they're always going to be weak. It's not a matter of weakness. It's a matter of medical. I mean, let's face it. If you're a diabetic and you had to take injections, they don't like it either. Uh, Hypertension, I'm on hypertension. So I have to take a pill every day. I don't like that either. But I'm darn glad it's there because it sustains me and it keeps me healthy. Same is true for medical assisted treatment. Then we drop down to a learning center. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> Why would a family need to know about a learning center? I'm, I'm calling out. The voice of families as addiction is calling out and saying, we want you and your community to start a learning center. And we will give you all of these seminars. We will give you the TV episodes. We will give you the books as a PDF format. We will give you PowerPoint presentations for each issue so that you can present it online as a Zoom or in person for all 32 with voiceover on each slide and handouts for that session. We will give you a book that shows you exactly how to concept, develop a concept for your local community. We give you a user manual on how to exactly set up a learning center, roles, responsibilities, budget. That's the uh, Family Solution Finder Learning Center user manual. We even give you a certification instructor's manual for the instructor so that the instructor knows how to be an instructor in your learning center. And, and we will walk you through exactly how to do this by phone. So, or in Ohio, we could come on site. So with that in mind, we would like for you, our shout out is that every county in the United States, maybe two or three counties share one, would have a Family Solution Finder Learning Center and provide this curriculum to the families in your area. But not just that, to the churches in your area. But not just that. We have what's known as the Pathfinder uh, Collaboration. It's a community collaboration where this learning center would go out locally and um, provide a book called titled from coach to family table to all your coaches in the high schools and, and, and middle schools. Provide the same book only with a different title titled from social worker to family table. That would be given to social workers that are dealing with families when they come to the ER or to their mental health uh, facility. And it's, it's basically 12 of the selected curriculums out of the 32 in the book. And we've got that for employers, pastors, community agencies. So you can see we're helping the learning center locally to create a kind of stakeholders ownership of when you see this type of family and their moment of need for your services, give them this book because inside will be our flyer locally that directs them to our learning center. This is a way to get stakeholders, which they want to do, participate in helping their community to begin to proactively address the issues of drugs and what it's doing is an implication to their society. So in its finality is harm reduction. Harm reduction is a very valuable concept and should be considered in your community. Needle exchange, a lot of people have a problem with that. We're not, we're not encouraging the use of uh, intravenous injections of these drugs. But we are saying, if you're going to do it, do it with a clean needle. Because if you don't, all kinds of other issues uh, occur, uh, occur from that. And they're obvious. HIV, uh, hep, hep C, the, the whole thing goes, uh, emulisms, just go, it, it just rolls into the next, into the next. So uh, there are other parts of harm reduction in terms of awareness building, uh, in terms of a place to go to be able to talk to somebody about your addiction while you're still using. Um, and it may be that some places we're starting to see these uh, become a little bit more accepted in communities where they would actually use. You know, it's an individual thing whether you accept that or not. And I'm indifferent as to, you know, what way you, will you bend on it. Me personally, I kind of think that it's a good idea in the sense that 
if you're, I'm a user and I go and I sit down and they have swabs, clean needles, they have a poster on why I shouldn't use, and they have this professional that I could talk to and I use, and they, almost every time when a person uses, they say, I wish I could stop this. I don't like this. I, I hate that this drug controls me. Or they're doing that in front of somebody that can answer that question. And they're not doing it in a crack house with other people saying, shut up and take it. They're doing it in an environment where a person, a professional is saying, hey, there are other choices. So there's kind of a duality of a, of a, of a well, I don't know how you're going to re- refer to it, but let's say it's an injection center. It's a gross term, but in terms of this, this site, this harm reduction site that they might go to use, it can be a very helpful environment for them rethinking what their options are. Kind of like find them in their mode of a pain and they might be more willing to listen to a solution. And trust me, whenever they use, they know that they're in a moment of pain and they wish that they could get out of it. They just don't know how. So this kind of rolls up the whole 32 learning series titled the Family Solution Finder Learning Series. And it gives you an option of a curriculum of other types of curriculums that are out there. I strongly encourage embrace one, two, or three different types, go on YouTube, get smart, pick your category, pick your issue, and then drill down on it and learn a lot about it. And in doing so, you will then have a voice. And it'll be a voice worth listening to. And that's where we want you. We want the American family to have a voice, a voice that they can hear, a voice that others can hear, and a voice that we can all share in because we're all going through the exact same thing. We're just not doing it together yet. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to listen and view our series today on the voice of families in addiction and this episode of the 32 learning series that's available to you as well as others for you to become knowledgeable on specific topics using a curriculum. Thank you very much and God bless you. Stand up for yourself And I'll back you up Cause problems don't solve themselves I'll tell you what Instead of would or could I think you should Draw a line in the sand and stand your ground It's for your own good